Welcome to the Revenue Engine Podcast. I'm your host, Rosalind Santa Elena, and I am thrilled to bring you the most inspirational stories from revenue generators, innovators, and disruptors, revenue leaders in sales, in marketing, and of course, in operations. Together, we will unpack everything that optimizes and powers the revenue engine. Growth Farm Production. Are you ready? Let's get to it. Driving revenue is a bit of art and a bit of science. The more science, meaning data and insights, but also repeatable, proven processes, the more likelihood of success. In this episode of the Revenue Engine podcast, Jonathan J. Mentor, the CEO and founder of Successment, shares his proven method of RevOps science that helps B2B startups ignite revenue at the most critical stage, the $1 million to $10 million journey. Jonathan also shares why he focuses on impacting economic growth and visibility for disadvantaged people in tech and why companies are focusing on all of the wrong things when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion. So please take a listen, get your notebooks out, and be ready to be inspired. So super excited to be here today with Jonathan J. Mentor, the CEO and founder at Successment. Successment is a revenue growth partner for diverse B2B startups that helps ignite revenue with a focus on the first 10 million in revenue, leveraging RevOps science and driving impact with diversity, equity, inclusion, and access. I am super, super, super excited to learn more. So welcome, Jonathan, and thank you so much for joining me. I'm really excited to be here, Rosalind. I'm excited that we get to have this conversation. It's been a long time coming, and I hope that you know we get a lot of nuggets out for your audience here today. Awesome. Thank you so much. Really appreciate you being here. So maybe before we dive in, let's talk a little bit about your backstory, right? Your career journey. I mean, you have such a broad range of experience. You've held fractional marketing leadership roles. You're a growth mentor for so many organizations. You've been, you know, a guest speaker in numerous occasions. You contribute to, you know, contributing author roles and even been an account executive. So maybe can you share more about your career journey and then maybe your experience prior to starting Successment? Sure. So I dropped out of college three times and I had a daughter. She's seven. Um, All that while being uh, Latinx, gay, brown, underrepresented in New York City. So these are kind of the just to put it in the right context of where I came from. I did not grow grow up around golf clubs. (laughs) So that kind of varied background, that divergent experience very much led me to where it is that I am today. So what ended up happening was, is I've always kind of had like a very entrepreneurial spirit. And I tried my hand at various different things. And I navigated my way through things like, you know, bar attending and the retail, you know, and then an opportunity presented itself to penetrate corporate. And again, you know, the entrepreneurial bug, the 7% of the world who actually have it, like really came out right my first year in corporate i always call it you know the the learning business acumen stage hey what's an email this is your agenda how do you sell am i being sold to how to show up to a meeting when do i you know the basic stuff that you take for granted if you've been in corporate for a while but then from there you you're two three four and five it was all about 
growth and experimentation for me. So much of the things, unfortunately for them, that I do now, I actually presented in that setting to move in the direction of growth because I didn't know what it was that I had locked in this brain was growth and revenue, you know, all these things. And um, <clears throat> it led me to become frustrated and I channeled my frustration into doing more and more freelancing and building more and more of my network and sharpening more and more of my skills and being more and more self-taught and removing more and more of my limiting beliefs and code switching less and less and less and really filling my seats and getting in front of some important opportunities, which I had to sacrifice for. And those opportunities still left me hungry and ambitious and excited and curious and reaching all the time. So eventually I found my way around some really amazing mentors, influencers, potential clients, and they helped me to grow. I helped them to grow. And, you know, all of a sudden now I, here I am, you know, years later is being invited to speak on stages and being flown out to different places. And then I have, you know, the founders and, and principals from Techstars and Parallel 18 and Black Ambition all calling to speak to me about, hey, John, how are you doing this revenue growth thing? What are you kind of doing? And now I get to be the picker. Now you have to dress up for me. <laughs> <laughs> love it. I love it. I love that journey. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, let's talk a little bit about the company because I think, you know, many companies are created out of that need, right? There's a need to solve a problem or sometimes there's that aha moment. Sounds like you've had a couple of those kind of getting here, but, you know, it leads to this idea for the company. And I think, you know, Successment's, you know, impact statement begins with that, you know, we provoke economic growth and visibility for disadvantaged humans in tech, period, right? How did the idea come about? Right. And what was that original vision, you know, really over four years ago now? So for me, everything leads back to my daughter. That is my purpose. Oh. And my daughter is a little, you know, black, brown, mixed, curly haired ball of energy that breaks things and moves very quickly. <laughs> and when I look at her, I see myself and I see the future. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, there are plenty of people that are very political. I am not. There are plenty of people that go on social media and they, you know, wear the awareness and they do the hashtags and they wear the t-shirts and they pump their fists in the air. And I'm like, that's all good and great and stuff like that. But I'm a big fan in this country that people listen to people with money. And the more money you have, the more influence and impact you have. And the more influence and impact you have, the more change that you can create. And so I had to think to myself, in the history of the friggin' world, what are the ways that people make a lot of money, right? Because you can make money selling toothbrushes or jumbo jets. Pick your poison. <laughs> In the history of the world, it's really been real estate and technology. Listen, I'm not going to go from house to house selling anything. So I said technology is the path for me. This is where my relationships are. I understand it very, very well. And the need that success fulfills was focusing on the underrepresented humans in tech. Why? We focus on revenue growth for startups that are only diversely led between the 1 million to 3 million dollar mark. Now think about that, Robin. That's a very delicate position to be in, but it's also critical that you navigate that in the right way. 
before a million, eh, I don't know, you still, you still might be kind of on Mickey Mouse time. I don't really know if you have a <laughs> concept. Very different, you know, the ideation, very different set of skills, right? Right. Above 10 million, 20 million, 25 million. I always say this to my founders, you know, affectionately, listen, if I can get you to 10, 15 million, and then you screw it up from there, you're a knucklehead, you don't deserve it, right? <laughs> it's really that sweet spot yeah. between a million and 10 where you really learn the most lessons, gain the most support, and learn if you're truly going to gain traction. And the reason why, another reason why it's important to focus on the spot is because with underrepresented humans, we're talking Latinx, queer, black, female, whatever the thing, there's a funding crisis. And I know that there's a funding crisis in VC and Angel because out of the you know multi-billions of dollars just in 2022 that were invested in tech startups and leadership, only 7% of that was BIPOC other. You know what the other, what the other 97, you know, 93 some odd percent, white men. Okay. Yep. And I have nothing you know, wrong with white men. Some of them are cute, the blonde surfer guys, whatever. I do business <laughs> with them. They're great. We'll have a coffee. But that's not the economy that I'm trying to affect. Yep. So when I see an opportunity to cause cultural and societal change through the growth of revenue, doing things that are positive and have long lasting impact, I do that through my special skill, which is revenue growth for a very specific kind of kind of founder and startup at their most vulnerable stage in the growth cycle. And that's for me, the way that um, success provokes economic growth and visibility for disadvantaged humans of technology. Mm, I love that. I love that. It's just, I love the way you explain it too. It's so easy to, you know, kind of step-by-step step of understanding why it's important, why here, why this focus area, why this is a critical, pitiful, pit, pivotal, excuse me, time for all <laughs> organizations. I love that. Um, so I definitely want to get into more on the revenue side, but let's talk a little bit more about diversity and such. Because, you know, I think when we talk about you know, diversity and equity and inclusion and all this, you know, there's been progress for sure has been made, but I think, you know, many organizations still, you know, they're just not great at it, you know? And I think, um, you know, how should you, you know, from your perspective, how should companies be thinking about this, right? You know, what are you seeing companies doing right? And maybe what are they doing wrong when it comes to being more diverse and more inclusive? I, I get this question a lot and I like it. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm by no means, you know, disclaimer, I am by no means a coach or any kind of HR or DEI professional. I just happen to be a member of the club and I like provoking uh, thoughtful and intentional conversations. But if you ask me my unqualified opinion, I'm very confident that one of the things that a lot of companies in startup and outside do wrong is they are not cognizant enough about cultural sensitivities. I always use myself as an example because my appearance, for example, Rosalind, was like the last thing on the bus to go in terms of my confidence as a professional, right? I grew up, for example, hip hop culture, reggaeton culture, New York City, the people that I looked up to that were positive role models, you know, they were wearing the gold chains, they were having fun, they were listening to hip hop, you know? And then you want to squish me into a corporate box where now I have to tuck in my pastel button-down shirt and boat shoes so I can fit in with you so you can respect me. That's terrible. Mm -hmm. That's not a conversation that's had enough, right? That cultural yes. sensitivity, because 
the trauma that women and black and brown and, and all the things have to carry is like there's so much energy that you have to put into fitting in in order to be taken seriously and move forward that damn it like everyone else has an advantage from the gate because they don't have to carry that book bag on their damn back right yep, yep. so one of the things that i feel are are fundamentally wrong with the way that companies are thinking about dia is just plain visibility bro mm. you want to come in to work in your jordans great you want to come in and celebrate dominican independence day awesome as long as you are giving the business the outcomes that they deserve, there is absolutely no reason why you should be pressured to be in. And it has such a domino effect, Rosalind, because when, and it happened for me too, I'm sure you've had this moment as well, where you see somebody who has the balls to be themselves as a leader, yeah. successfully in a business setting, and you see them, you're like, wow, like, I can do that too? Cool. So now I can take this big old book bag off my back and I can walk 10 more miles up the mountain because yeah. now we have parity, you know? And I remember, like, I remember the day like it was yesterday when I finally saw another person dressed as if they were, you know, walking around my own neighborhood back in, you know, uptown Manhattan or the Bronx. And I was like, oh, no, but they're like really successful. Everybody in the room is paying attention to them. Like, they're influent and they can do that. I wonder how they do that. Because this, like, I'm here in this sweaty suit. I'm hot. I feel restricted. <laughs> it's cut my belly in half. I want to eat this. You know, and, you know, people undervalue how much that means to people just yeah. to really allow people to show up as themselves. And I think it's, it's very hard to, to govern that. Mm -hmm. It's easier to govern things that people can understand, like, metrics and how many diversity hires did we had how much money did we put in like none of that matters like i want to walk into your office and see somebody like in a basketball jersey like that's you know because if you come from a different culture rosalind like i remember because i grew up kind of in this dual world like certain people let's say that you know, they really do grow up in that setting you know that this is what they wear all the time this is how they talk this is their music. You know, they're not trying to be appropriate. Like, that's how they were raised. They don't have to check. And it's interesting because now that I run SuccessSmith and I have um, employees from the other world, now they have yeah. to get to me. And I find it <laughs> fascinating. Fascinating, you know? So I, I think in, in a nutshell, companies should pay attention and stop tiptoeing, but rather to stomp about being very visible in their policy for diversity, equity, and belonging. Because that belonging piece is often overlooked, but I think it's the most essential. Yeah, yeah, I love that. That's great advice. And I love I love the way you kind of put things in perspective and give examples. You know, I think the storytelling is so powerful, right? Because it's real life examples that people can actually, like I could literally see an image and see that in my, you know, as you're speaking. I love that. Um, so let's dive a little bit deeper into that because, you know, along the same lines, you know, as a woman of Asian ancestry, I've been in tech, I've been in revenue, like almost 30 years now, right? So many times I've been the only, right? The only in the room, the only woman, the only minority, the only parent, right? Even early on when, when my children were small, even being a working mom was a big debate. Like, should you even work outside the home kind of thing, right? You're going to damage your children for the rest of their lives if you work outside the home. 
And then being in revenue operations, you're also a minority oftentimes in the revenue group as well. Um, so especially as my career has grown, you know, kind of moving up into leadership, less and less, right? I still see less and less. So maybe what advice do you have for individuals who, you know, may find themselves as the only, but they really want to grow their career like others? You know, how have you found success, you know, maybe for you yourself or maybe for your clients? I would say that that being the only is a distinct advantage. And I always, for my founders who walk in trauma for so long and they're able to recognize their own trauma and then channel that trauma into a powerful weapon, I always give them this perfect example. So Rosalind, I always work in startups and startups, especially at the million dollar mark, oh, we're first to market, what competitors? Like they always, and I'm like, <laughs> let me tell you something. First of all, you're always gonna have a competitor. It's just not obvious to you. And if you're a founder and you've made it into this room, and you've generated X amount of revenue, You most your business most definitely belongs in the business ecosystem. And then I just zip it and I look at them starting to connect the dots in their head. And the dots that they connect are, if you can sit here and tell me that you're first to market and the only of your kind as a startup and a business, and you're about to crush it, <laughs> how the hell can you not feel the same way being the only black gay man in the room and not being able to take over that company, being the only, you know, cisgender, Asian, fill in the blank, shuffle the dice, identity metric here, that person in the room and still not be able to move forward successfully. It's like, I'm not a coach at all, Rosalind, but dealing specifically with the humans that I deal with, you have to learn how to step out of that trauma and say, today's the day that I say, fuck that. Mm -hmm. I'm the only one here. So that doesn't make me different. That makes me special. I am the white marble and the, you know, the big old jar of black marbles. I stand out and I'm going to learn how to leverage this. So for clients, I always say, especially like almost invariably, the founders have such an interest it's like the most delicious story rosalind mm -hmm. and as you know in revenue you know there are different stages and cycles and what and i'm like how amazing is it that you actually have an authentic story to tell that will be such an incredible driver of awareness you say in the future you want to be the new amazon can you tell me anything that emotes for you from amazon Do you feel anything with it? No, absolutely not. But your story with your very specific market is emotive. And that's critical to you growing in market because you don't have to have like a product distinction to grow revenue. You can just have a brand distinction and your brand starts with you as the founder. So you being unique and saying, yes, I'm going to step into purpose and say, yep. First generation Asian woman here, and I'm actually brown. I don't look like all the ones that you see on TV. No, I don't have an accent. No, my last name isn't particularly ethnic, but I'm still who I am, and I'm the founder. Let me explain to you how the hell it is that I got here and how <laughs> difficult it was for me to navigate. You're going to have everyone at the edge of their seat leaning in to learn who you are, why they love you, and why they want to do business. Oh, great. That, thank you so much. I'm like, I'm so intrigued. I'm like, literally, like, I'm missing, like, where I'm actually supposed to jump in and ask you a next question, because I'm just like taken, like, off this path with you. And I'm like, thinking about what you're saying. 
Oh, I can't wait to like, after we're done recording, I cannot wait to go back and just listen again and again to kind of pick up all of these nuggets. Exciting. Love it. All right. So I will take a deep breath and let's shift gears a bit and talk about igniting revenue, right? Your business focuses on B2B startups, their first 10 million in revenue, like we've been talking about. And as you said, this is the make it or break it stage, right? For, for many early companies. So when companies are focused on that zero to 10 million stage, you know, what are the things that they should be doing? What are those top priorities to help ensure that they make it? Okay, so in order to uncomplicate revenue growth, because let's put it into context, revenue growth, growth marketing, hacking, whatever, there's a lot of noise. It's very noisy. And certain things work for certain people. Certain things work for certain industries, for B2B versus B2C, startup versus enterprise. And there's a lot of kerfuffle around it. So for me, I'm very clear on the size, stage, and kinds of B2B startup that I work with. It's a very specific growth stage. And I wanted to uncomplicate that to make it simple and give access to the humans that have the potential to start to grow. That intellectual property is called the RevOps science. I'm going to say that again. It's RevOps science. It's not RevOps. <laughs> it's not science. Yep. To me, RevOps is very stationary. RevOps is the collection of data that's curated and governed, handed off to leadership to make better revenue growth decisions. That's not what RevOps science is. RevOps science takes those data insights and puts revenue in motion. So what we'll do is, is we'll take all of the, what we call revenue indicating metrics, the ones that like, you know, marketers and, you know, all the high up data, you know, they like to hide behind, oh, look how many leads or, oh my God, look how much pipeline we've got. Are those revenue indicating? No, they're not. Those are nice numbers that you like to talk about because you're nervous about reporting to me on real revenue indicating metrics, right? We unlock what those are and we use those insights to put that revenue in motion by way of actual campaigns. Mm -hmm. So RevOps Science uses data, use it qualitative and quantitative. Let me just start there. It uses your industry expertise because we're revenue growth experts. We can also be an expert in your technology. Your input is critical. And it gives you three very important things to start your journey on growing revenue. Process, mm -hmm. progress, and performance. When we're talking process, what I always like to do is I like to frame the project management and revenue growth piece first before anything. We call our process BOOM, and that stands for begin, operate, obviate, and maximize. In that order, mm -hmm. in begin, what you want to do is you want to slow down so you can grow fast. Most founders come to me at the million dollar Mark Roslin and they'll be like, well, we've been doing A, B, and C, or we've been growing, and this is what works, and I can't let go. And, I, and I'm like, okay, that worked out for you from 500000 to a million, but now you're in a conversation with me. So what I need you to do is put your gun away, chill, <laughs> finish yeah. doing your food, and let us now slow down, look at all of the opportunities and vulnerabilities from a qualitative and a quanti uh, quantitative perspective, and talk about how everything is so urgent but not everything is a priority, right? That's right. So let us prioritize our new, not go to market, our back to market, okay? Mm -hmm. 
And once we decide what the, where the opportunities are, they might be very divergent um, from what you originally had, and it might be very different and unknown to you from what you've previously been able to do. But combine true revenue operation and growth experience with your industry experience and all the lessons that you've learned from the path from zero to a million, and we're going to have a pretty damn good picture of where it is that we need to be going. That's begin. Now we can start to go fast, and that's the next step. Operate. Go, right? We go to market by mapping um, all of the revenue opportunities to five revenue generating pillars. It's very uncontroversial, Rosalind, because uh, a human like you you or me or anybody on Google will recognize it as, oh, this is like um, a buyer journey or a path to purchase. Uncontroversial. But what we do is we unlock where the revenue opportunity is at each stage of the buyer journey. So we're not just focused on sales and marketing and putting all that incredible pressure culturally and organizationally on top of them. Like, you're the ones who generate revenue. It's like, no, 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 no. At the awareness phase, we can be generating revenue. Mm -hmm. At the engagement phase, we can be generating revenue. At lands, we can be planning for more revenue. At expands, we're getting more revenue. And we do that by making sure that we align the data in motion between what most humans understand as revenue, the sales and marketing engine with customer success and uh, product and brands. Because once you build those things together, what you're doing is, is you're gonna generate quick and dirty stuff like, okay, lead generation. You understand lead generation. I know that that's not gonna make revenue tomorrow. You like focusing on that metric. Great, <laughs> I'll feed you lead generation. What we really need to be doing in parallel is demand generation. Because eventually we wanna lower our CAC. Do founders typically have all the mental real estate to be changing the world and focusing on the correct revenue generating metrics? Hell no. Hell no. They're out there conquering, you know, universes and stuff. That's my <laughs> job. So in the second step operate, we get to market very, very quickly. We find out where the revenue generation is happening, which areas need to be set up better, and then we prioritize them, right? Like this is fundamentally a sales-driven organization. We need the founder in there in the trenches doing sales. Another one might be, you know what? You've been going um, from a B2B model and it's costing you a lot of money and time. We really need to switch gears, get you a channel partner and do B2B to C. That's going to be the full swoop here. Or you know what? You don't need to spend money, actually. I know. Oh my God, God forbid, Rosalind. You don't need to spend money on a go-to-market motion. You don't. Why? Because your product team is kick-ass. Yeah. Let us product roadmap your current customer base and show them the yellow brick road to all your upsells. That can't be sales and marketing that does that. That is a fundamental function of the product team. So now the product team that has you know traditionally been in the background, the nerdy guys with the big chunky glasses coding and stuff, <laughs> it's like, no guys, we're bringing you to the front lines. Like we need to focus on what the usage is here, what the experience has been, what are the surprises, where are the heat maps on the usage of this product, and we're gonna upsell in that direction. And the ones who can do that, that's not the salesperson because they don't know what they're saying. It's you, product. Mm -hmm. And this is very surprising to people. But anyway, we let the cards fall how they may in step to operate. And then again, we do something that founders hate. We slow down so we can grow fast. Yep. So we set a period of that back to market or go to market motion. And then we do a look back period, which have been our most successful revenue operations, which are the most successful channels, um, which has yielded the most results, which one needs the most improvement, et cetera. 
And then at that point, we decide, which is very controversial in revenue circles, that's the only time when we decide to deploy paid strategy. Because if we don't understand and conquer on an organic level, our own community, our own customer base, why would you sit there and say, you know what, Jonathan, we need to move faster. You know, instead of you testing messaging uh, on an organic, you know, I'm going to give you $5,000 to do the same damn thing, but with 95000 so make my problem go away. And I'm just like, that's not how this works, right? <laughs> so once we unlock the organic, that's when we move into paid. And this is called obviate because it's obvious to us what we need to be doing to, to, to grow. And the reason why this is a step in and of itself is because this is the pressure test, right? Mm-hmm. Doing business at a million, Rosalind, is a much different volume than doing business at 500 million. Do you have the infrastructure? Do you have the customer success team? Have you pressure tested? What is the plan? How are you gonna do this at volume? Do you need to fill resources? Do you need to scale? Do you need another round of funding? Do you need a physical location? Let's look at all of the things. And it's important to inject my, you know, my tiny sprinkle of DEI in it because not only is it important to me and to successment and to successful ecosystem of startups to grow in revenue, but it's to grow it responsibly and defensively. You only get one chance at a first impression as a startup. So you're telling me you're as a founder, you're going to get hot headed and you're going to say, oh, we got organic. Our ads are working. Great. Get me 5,000 new clients this month. I'm going to say to you, great. Okay. When your churn is 97%, I won't talk to you about another go go to market motion because now we're going to have to go back to market twice as hard. It's going to be four times as expensive. And then you're going to blame the revenue growth person. Uh Uh-uh. Let's partner smarter than that. Right? So in step three, obviate, that's what we do. We make sure that the entire startup ecosystem, which typically at this revenue stage is still rather young, can handle this volume of new business. Last step in the process is M, maximize. That closes our boom. Maximize is, again, it gets me in trouble with a lot of the revenue and the marketing (laughs) guys because I kind of call them on their stuff. It's remaining agile. Remaining agile to unexpected things in market, net new opportunity, net new vulnerability, threats, and being able to say, right, we have this great strategy. It really was the best thing since sliced bread back in January, but guess what, we're in July. The reality is, is that this competitor came out with that. The reality is, you know, the White House called you about your great invention, and we're not just going <laughs> to sit there and say, that's not part of the content plan. So, you know, it's like, let's cash in on what this opportunity and maximize it. So that process, that framework constantly rejiggers the organization and all of the strategies, tactics, and resource in the direction of revenue. Because at the end of the day, boom is simple. You look at it and you say, okay, is this decision going to lead to revenue? Yes or no? If the answer is no, then it's it could be a maybe. I don't, I don't want to talk about it. I want to talk about, is this going to lead to revenue? And then my next question is when, which brings us to the second piece of RevUp Science, which is performance. With performance, we try to make a kind of a bargain between founder team and deployment because we need to understand what is your overall revenue goal all right how is each function of the business brand sales marketing customer success product etc how are they all contributing to revenue is it even really clear to them are they measuring themselves by the same metrics that you're measuring yourself right You're measuring yourself on, okay, overall net new revenue growth, retention, capital funds raised, whatever, but talk to sales about what they're doing. Ask them, 
What are they doing? Okay, closed deals, um, <laughs> calls, pipe metrics are, you know, it's like yeah. two different <laughs> like apples and oranges. Yep. Align them in that performance piece. And then when you align them and you remove the fluff about these are, you know, departmental goals or whatever, I don't care about the departmental goals. Report that down. Don't manage up to the founder and talk about departmental goals. I don't care about product, for example, since we were talking before. I don't care about how many net new releases you dream about. What, how these net new releases lead into revenue? Connect the dots for me. I want you to draw a line between what you're doing and revenue. Same thing with marketing. We need to generate, you know, month over month, we need to generate <laughs> net new 25% new leads. Draw a line between 25% MOM lead growth and revenue. And when you challenge that way, if you have the right humans on your team, it's going to make them rise to the occasion because these are experts. If you're an expert sales or product or marketing person, you're going to say, you know, yeah, that shit isn't really going to work. I can't tap dance. She doesn't care about that. She really cares about like this. Okay, the revenue. We're talking about what is marketing going to do? Let's focus on the attribution piece and they will work for you. That's which true. leads to the last piece, which is now uh, uh, <laughs> process of uh, performance, not progress. Progress tells us what things have we been doing as a team? What are the things that we've been doing as a team that lead to revenue outcomes? Are we focused on the correct metric? Things like, and then you kind of build a scoreboard with it. Things like, again, you know, how many sales calls did I hit? How many net new releases did I do? How many, you know, customer satisfaction served? I don't care. Report down. I don't want to hear anything about that. What I want you to report to me on are the activities that you're doing to impact revenue. What are those metrics? And if your activity today didn't lead to revenue tomorrow, understandable. Give me a when. Yep. Give me a timeline. Because I need to understand that you're thinking as intelligently and as passionately about uh, about revenue growth as I am, and not just perfecting the function of customer success or sales or brands or marketing or product yeah. or whatever. So in a nutshell, when you lay it out that way, and of course this is the podcast, the visuals help, you really unlock revenue growth with RevOps Science by defending your focus with a, with a steady process that's in the direction of revenue, mm -hmm. monitoring that with revenue facing performance mm -hmm. and then checking on that progress and ensuring that you're growing because some revenue goals you'll set on the clock some revenue goals you'll set on the calendar and it's up to you you know those two slices of bread that your peanut butter and jelly is leading to make that sandwich because if not you're really just spinning wheels and that's not how you grow Oh, I love that. So many things. So me being a RevOps, you know, and kind of go to market ops um, practitioner for so many years, everything you're saying, I'm just like absorbing because I'm like, oh my gosh, she's speaking my language. She's talking about alignment and forget about number of leads. And, you know, we care about revenue. Right. And that's funny because I don't know how many times I've actually even said that to people. It's like, how does this tie back to the to the revenue numbers? How does this tie back to the overall goals? We don't care. You know, we don't care about that focus. Those are all the activities and things that you do to get there. But tell me, right? Um, and the other thing you said about just kind of thinking about marketing and sales, but what about like what's happening within each step of the customer journey, right? And some of those areas where you can make small tweaks, even if it's 1%, 2% improvement, that's going to end up in the overall, you know, improving your outcomes. So yeah, you're 100%. just like speaking my, my language. I love it. Um, 
Yeah. You know, I mean, I think as I think about the revenue engine, you know, in this podcast, I'm always hoping others will obviously be able to accelerate revenue growth and power that revenue engine. So I think we've talked about a lot, a lot of those, those things um, that can really help founders and revenue leaders really be thinking about like, wow, these are things I should be thinking about today. Really that mindset shift even about stop thinking about calls and number of leads and visits to the website and start thinking about some of those other things that are really impactful to revenue. Um, But maybe from your perspective, are there a couple of things that you say, hey, people should really be thinking about, you know, if you're a revenue leader, you need to be thinking about this like right now today. Are there like two or three things? I'll say yes. And I also say I want to put it into context because the world of startup is very different from the world of enterprise and being an in-house revenue leader is very different from being an outsourced revenue leader. I'll speak to the startup crowd because this is where I, you know, this is where I boogie and go to happy hours on boats and stuff with my friends. Now, (laughs) for me, you know, that's what you get when you grow revenue. People take it on boats. Now, for me, it's that understand that the unspoken thing for you as the revenue leader, if you're dealing with a founder, is you're invariably in competition with their thirst, hunger, and obsession on raising a round of capital. If you can show them that growth can mean different things, okay, you're going to be a hero because if you have a founder and this founder is obsessed with dollars in the bank, it doesn't matter if it comes from you, the revenue growth ex, uh, leader, or if it comes from their VC. Yay, we got more money in the bank. That's growth to me. It's like, okay, let us <laughs> break into what we can do as revenue leaders. Well, we can change the world because as a revenue growth leader, what you can do is introduce that, you know, almost Mickey Mouse mermaid unicorn fantasy that's called community and product-led growth. What? No, no, we gotta be hitting them sales calls, man. We gotta get on the plane. You know, we gotta get Google in here. We gotta get on the Fortune Five, and we have to. You no, know, it's a big PR push that we need, man. Because if we get into Forbes, it's just like shh, in our little Slack channel with our paying customers. Let's just have a conversation. Why would we, you know? Why are we spending so much time on that? We're not gonna generate revenue for months doing that. So. Give me my months and I'll give you your revenue. Let's walk you through why. Because if at the revenue level that we're at now, and again, remember, Rosalind, I'm on the $10 million crop. You decide to, you know, deal with your VCs, your equity in the company is going to get smaller and smaller and smaller. And the terms <laughs> are going to be more and more and more predatory. And your, uh, your opportunities are going to get smaller and smaller and smaller if you continue um, depending on capital raise, right? Especially if you need it, because then the terms are on their terms. Now imagine a world where we're already generating, I don't know, 100,000 MRR, okay? Do you think that a VC is going to come and try to piss on your lawn? No, they're not. Because you already understand what your superpower is, what absolutely any business's superpower is, the thing that no one in the world can touch, your community. Because you could be selling a commodity if you wish, but there's a specific reason why your customer went to you. And when you unlock and you lean into whatever that motivation is to do business, 
business with a particular startup when there are so many options in the universe, that is where the money is. Why us? Why now? Why this amount of money? Where else are you spending money? What else can we offer you? How are we making you comfortable? Why do you hate us? Why did you complain? Why that review? Why did you go away? Why did you stay for this long and not that long? Unlocking all that data and spending that time. And I understand when you're dealing with founder type personality, it can seem so uncomfortable. They want to move. You know, it's, <laughs> we're sitting on our hands. Sales are, you know, I want to hit the bell when we hit our sales goals and stuff. You can't ring a bell because you finished a qualitative listening tour. It's not sexy. But as a revenue leader, you got to sell it to the founder and say, listen, you're, we're in competition with the clock. We're in competition with our runway. Don't put me in competition with the process because I'm telling you, if we do it this way, rather than the way that you know and understand a big expensive go-to-market push, where is the opportunity? We don't know. We don't know. Don't pretend like I know. Don't point your finger and demand that I know because the only ones who know that is our customers. And if you don't allow me time to evaluate what the customers want, right, then I'm not going to get you an effective back to market or go to market motion. I'm gonna get you something that you recognize while you're out looking for uh, investors. And God forbid you don't ma- raise your round, you're gonna be pointing your finger at me and talking about where's all my revenue. Well, you didn't give me time to do what I wanted. What you wanted me to do was go and do a TikTok influencer campaign. And that's what you thought was gonna sell us, you know, the next million dollars in revenue. That's what you thought, right? <laughs> Data doesn't have feelings. Let me be the revenue partner that you need in order to unlock those opportunities. As a revenue leader, these are the things that you should be focused on in terms of revenue growth, using your data to tell the compelling story. And it can be intimidating depending on where in the you know revenue leader universe you are, in-house, outhouse, you know, enterprise, whatever, because you know everybody wants to keep their job at the end of the day. But if you're the brilliant revenue partner that comes in with a very divergent set of not only expectations, but benchmarks of what you're measuring with a clear line to this is how we are going to grow without any outside interference. Like you are the Maharaja of the revenue operation. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So for me, that's really the thing. Use your data to come up with the most compelling argument for your go to market or revenue growth motion and stick to your damn guns because all you do is tap dance on the founders and the vc's time to do what they recognize and they're setting goals for you when you yourself don't know how that connects to revenue the writing is on the wall thank you thank you that's great uh well thank you so much for joining me um but as we wrap up before i let you go i always ask my guests two things one you know what is the one thing about jonathan that others might be surprised to learn and this might be hard because you're a pretty open book. Um, but two, you know, what is the one thing that you really want everyone to know about you? So something that others might be surprised to learn and something that you really want others to know about you. And they can be the same thing. I think a lot of times they end up being the same thing. Well, as gorgeous as I am, I'm single, so I need to find a husband <laughs> soon. I think that's really surprising. <laughs> that um, is surprising. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's um, no, from a professional perspective, I think that... Um, Something that's likely surprising to know about me is is that through my journey, I've been 1,000% self-taught. So my whole, not mine, because I definitely, let me be very careful. My team, Mm -hmm. their 
breadth of experience and challenging and reaching with me has led us to a track record of unlocking startup growth, 10 and 15-ish million dollars at a time, and we've never lost the client. We, we parted ways with one client because their revenue grew to a stage where they were now throwing things at me that I was just like, I don't even want to pretend I know what you're talking about. If you want to do like then go to this guy over here. He does enterprise, like he does like like that that stage because that's a different yeah. set of skills. But other than that, it's it's like we've ne- like never, you know, like folks come to me and they're like, you know, if they're armed up and you know you got to recognize, I'm not trying to sell to you. I'm actually trying to find out if I can help you if I know enough about where it is that you are to help you. And if they come to me all, all armed up, well, well, we're going to need a testimony. Maybe I'll FaceTime my client right now on iPhone. Let me turn my camera on and show you. Hey, sis, how you, you know, she's right here. You want to ask her any questions? Look her up on LinkedIn right now. This thing for, no, th- I think that that's interesting, that I'm really that down to earth. Like I really do text all my founders and, you know, listen to all of their stories and hear about all of the growth and, and, and the way that they think about things. Like I'm that, I'm that guy. Like I like to hang out with my clients. It's, it's a lot of fun. Oh, I love that. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast and just for sharing so many, so many great insights. Um, you definitely spoke my language like throughout and lots of points resonated with me. And like I said earlier, I cannot wait to go back and just listen to the entire episode <laughs> again. Um, but thank you so much. This has been so great. And this is going to be so impactful for the audience as well. Good. I'm glad. Rosa. Well, if anything, I'm here. So you let me know if you need anything from me. I look forward to seeing the episode. Awesome. Thank you. All right.